Well, hello there, Hillcrest. How are y'all today? Good, good. Uh, I count it a true honor and privilege anytime I'm given an opportunity to stand before you with the word of God open before me. And today, uh, we will be in the famous book of Amos. See what I did there? Uh -huh. now, now you'll be thinking about cookies the whole time, right? Um, yes, we are in the book of Amos today, and I would just like to take a brief survey before we begin. Who by show of hands has never heard a sermon from the book of Amos? All right, a lot of us, me, me either. Uh, I've also never preached from the book of Amos, so we'll check a few items off our bucket list today and um, jump into the word of God. If you're here for the first time today, uh, welcome. We are continuing in a series on the minor prophets and they're called minor not because they're in middle school um, or because they're of lesser importance than the major prophets. Uh, we just use that, that term minor because their books are comparatively shorter to the major prophets. And so, uh, like last week, our brother, Pastor Heath, uh, preached a very good sermon from uh, the book of Joel, three chapters long, whereas the prophet Isaiah is 66 chapters long. And so, uh, they're just comparatively shorter. And so, we'll jump into the word of God today. Who's excited to hear from the book of Amos today? All right. Let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray this, amen. About 10 months ago, uh, my mother had some serious health concerns. She was having chronic abdominal pain. And so she went to the doctor and they took a look and they determined that surgery was necessary. And while they were in there, they noticed the root cause of the pain was cancer. They recommended immediate chemotherapy and she took her treatments. Many of you even here today have seen her on the prayer list on Wednesday nights and you've been praying fervently for her and I'm so grateful for that. I'm happy to report to you today that she's completed her treatments. In fact, she's right here today. Mom, are you here? Can you stand, Mom? It's the first time she's been to church in about a year. We didn't plan that. The point of the story is that cancer is subtle. It, it often goes almost completely unnoticed. Mom was here in the David Pepper Connect group at 8.15 every Sunday, worshiping here at 9.30 with you all every Sunday while the whole time something beneath the surface was going on in her body. Praise God that it was identified and treated promptly. Otherwise, I'd have a different report for you today. But there are many similarities between cancer in our physical bodies and sin in our hearts. Both of them, cancer in the body, sin in the heart, can be very subtle and hard to spot. And both of them, if left unchecked, can prove fatal. And so we must do with cancer, with sin in our hearts, what God calls us to do, which is attack it aggressively. 
This was the case with the Israelites at the time of Amos. Just before the exile into Babylon, Israel was in a state of spiritual decline. Their king here in the northern kingdom was Jeroboam II, and he was a successful king in terms of military success and economic success. In fact, Israel uh, was so successful, so prosperous, the only kingdom that rivaled it, the only king that rivaled it was Solomon in the days of old. Outwardly, they appeared very healthy. But inwardly, spiritual cancer was wreaking havoc. Outwardly, they were worshiping God, but inwardly, they were very far from him. Their worship was corrupted by their pagan neighbors and their adopting their practices and their prosperity was largely due to the result of oppressing the poor in horrible ways as we'll see in just a moment. And so what does God do when his people go astray? He sends a prophet. And Amos is unlike the other prophets that we'll hear about. He describes himself as neither the prophet nor the son of a prophet. He's actually a shepherd from the south. And God, as it were, sends him to come in and give a spiritual prognosis, to have laser precision to identify what's going on beneath the surface and prescribe the remedy. The book of Amos as a whole teaches us that God is righteous and just, and he calls his people to be righteous and just as well. And today we'll consider just one application from that, touching on the theme of subtle sins. And here's the main point. You can jot it down in the notes if you, if you have them. God calls us to repent of the sins that we tolerate. God calls us to repent of the sins that we tolerate. Our God, our great physician, knew the hearts of the Israelites at this time, and he knows ours as well. And he has just the remedy for our sin problem, and it is repentance. Now, I've entitled this sermon, Killing Respectable Sins, with the scare quotes there to to hopefully get your attention. And I want to be clear from the very beginning that there is nothing respectable about sin. There is no sin, not a single solitary one, that would ever in any way be deemed even remotely worthy of Respect. No, my point in using that term is the same point that Jerry Bridges did in the book of the same title. Is that, is that we treat them as respectable. There's some sins that we're okay with, if truth be told. Deep down inside, we, we've made peace with them. And God calls us to put those things to death, to repent of them. These are sins that we tend to tolerate, or sins that go under the radar. They're hidden cancers of the soul. And in his table of contents, he gives a, a list of some of them. I'll list them out. Things like anxiety and frustration, discontentment, ingratitude, pride, selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience, irritability, Things like anger and judgmentalism, envy and jealousy, gossip, complaining, sins of the tongue. Now, I just want to be honest with you, and I want you to be honest before God today. Do you find any of those things in your life? 
does your heart harbor any of those things? This leads to the first point, it's that our hearts harbor respectable sins. Look with me at Amos chapter two, we'll we'll look at verses six and seven together. The Bible says there, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. God is calling Israel here to notice their neglect of the poor among them. Needy people were being treated, as we just read, as less than a pair of sandals. Look at verse eight with me. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Part of their exploitation was taking the very garments that the poor needed to keep warm at night. These garments were given in pledge, probably as collateral for a loan, to pay an exhorted debt. Think maybe loan sharks or payday loan plays. This is what was happening. The wealthy people of Israel were then using these garments to lounge on as they drank their wine, which was also paid for by money taken from the poor, right before altars of worship. Their hypocrisy and complete indifference to the plight of the poor infuriated God. And I I don't want us to miss what's happening here. The Israelites are laying down at the altar of the Lord, but with garments that they've extorted from the poor. It's mockery. It reminds me of the words from Proverbs 14, verse 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Look at that language, insulting the maker of the poor. Oppressing the poor is insulting to God. Strong language. And yet, very few, if any, of the Israelites at the time of Amos would have identified themselves as those people. Very few would have said, we are trampling the head of the poor into the dust. Very few would have said, we treat the needy less than a pair of sandals. And that's the nature of respectable sin. It's subtle. It's socially acceptable. It's trendy even. And here, their respectable sin was selfishness. And how do we know when our hearts are selfish? There's at least three ways that we can tell if our hearts are being selfish. We harbor selfishness, one, when we seek our interests at the expense of others. Paul will say in Philippians chapter two, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's Christ-like to be selfless, but sometimes we're selfish, especially when we seek our interests at the expense of others. We also harbor selfishness when we hoard money and refuse to give people our time. Uh, We only have so much time, so much money. 
can't make more time, right? You can even make more money. You can't make more time. But God calls us to use the limited resources that we have, time, money, gifts, talents, to help others to be selfless, to be generous and not selfish. So we, we harbor selfishness when we seek our interests at the expense of others. We harbor selfishness when we hoard money and refuse to give people our time. And then finally, we, we harbor selfishness when we are inconsiderate of the needs of others. I'm reminded of a conversation that Jesus had with a lawyer once regarding the greatest commandment of all. And it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And in this conversation, the lawyer was very happy that Jesus gave that expression. But Jesus went on to give a second one that's like unto it, right? To love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus described a man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And on his way, he fell among a gang and he was beaten, stripped of his clothing, his possessions, He was beat within an inch of his life and left for dead. And Jesus said there just so happened to be a religious man going right nearby, a priest. And we think in the story, man, this priest is gonna help the man, right? No, he does not. He sees him and he passes by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite comes, another religious man. He understands the law perfectly. Likewise, he sees the man and passes by on the other side. And then there is this Samaritan, hated outcast, who sees the man, and Jesus uses this phrase, he had compassion on him. He went to where he was, he stooped down, and he bandaged his wounds, and he poured on oil and wine. And he lifted him up and put him on his own animal. And he himself walked out as the man rode all the way to a place of lodging. And then he stayed the night and he took care of the man. And in the morning, he gave the innkeeper a couple of hundred dollars and said, please take care of him. And whatever else you spend, I'll cover it when I see you again. And Jesus concluded that story by saying, Who was a neighbor to the man who was robbed? It was the Samaritan, right? Luke 10, 37, Jesus says, now you go and you do likewise. You see, the Levite and the priest asked themselves the wrong question. They asked themselves, what will happen to me if I help this man? But the Samaritan asked himself, what will happen to this man if I don't help him? You see, each and every one of us harbors respectable sins, and here the Israelites were selfish. And I ask you today to do business with God in your heart. What sin is in your heart today? What is it that you're tolerating currently that God is calling you to repent of? And why do I press this issue so much? Because our hearts tend to harbor respectable sins. And number two, our sins cause relational distance with God. Our sins cause relational distance with God. Look with me at Amos chapter four, verses six through 12. 
God says there, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew and your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locust devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. This phrase again and again and again, yet you did not return to me, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. The most important thing, the most important treasure that we have is communion with Christ, closeness to him intimacy with the Lord, where we hear his voice and we are synchronized with his heart and we love what he loves and we hate what he hates. Does anyone know what that intimacy feels like? Where you're walking with the Lord and you know you have closeness with him. Our sins tarnish that. They create distance where before there was closeness. And God responds in a very specific way. Let's look at it together from Amos chapter five, verses 21 through 23. The Lord says there, I hate, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Can you imagine God saying that to you? My friends, the God who said this to Israel is our God. And the same respectable sins that pulled Israel far from God, if we're not diligent, can take root in our hearts as well. If we're not diligent to repent of the sins that we tend to tolerate, God will say to us what he said to Israel right here. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. God hates our worship if our hearts are rebellious. Our singing means nothing to God if our hearts are far from him. Jesus will say in Matthew 15 to religious people, man, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. In vain do you worship. It would be a shame if we were to get up on a Sunday morning and brush our teeth and wash our face and 
put on our Sunday best and come here and sing our songs and, man, honor God with our lips. The whole while, truly, spiritually, we're a million miles away. Don't let that ever be said about you. And you may ask, how does that happen? How can that happen? And I say harboring respectable sin in your heart, tolerating gossip and complaining and impatience and selfishness and jealousy. It happens when we make excuses for our sin and when we make peace with some sin because it's not as bad as other sin. No, it's cancer. Kill it. The Puritan, John Owen, said it well when he said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. What is it that God wants? The next verse, verse 24, perhaps the principal verse in the whole book of Amos. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. God is righteous and he calls his people to be righteous, not just outwardly, in the, uh, all the while inwardly there's rebellions, rebellion and wickedness. No, God calls us to repent of the sins that we tolerate, to kill them, the selfishness and the greed. And in context here, God wants us to be considerate of those who are weak, defenseless, needy. If you're perceptive, in your family and in your church and in your community, there are people around you who are weak, defenseless, and needy. I'll list just a few. There's elderly people among us who need our help. They're widows. They're orphans and fatherless children. The poor among us need our help. And the unborn need our help. There are disenfranchised groups among us that we need to be considerate of and God help us to fight the right, for the rights of those that are defenseless. One application today is for someone to find a way to help those that are weak and defenseless among you. We partner with over a dozen organizations in our community, Safe Harbor Pregnancy Center, Waterfront Rescue Mission, Florida Baptist Children's Homes. We have so many partnerships. And in the Next Step Center, you can learn what you can do or how you can get involved or how you can help those that are needy among us. Because God calls us to be righteous and just because he is righteous and just. So our hearts harbor respectable sins. Our sins cause relational distance with God. And then finally, our God pours out restorative grace. It's not all bad news this morning. At the end of Amos, we have this passage, Amos chapter nine, verses 11 through 15. Let's read it and see how God pours out restorative grace here. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches, raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. 
The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I've given them, says the Lord your God. The only remedy for our debilitating sin problem is the amazing grace of God. He goes on for eight and a half chapters of just hammering them, judgment, 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 and he concludes with this beautiful picture of grace. Notice the phrases with me, verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David. Verse 14, I will restore, I will plant, I will repair, I will rebuild, I will raise up. The good news of the gospel is not what we can do for God, but what he has already done for us. On the cross, our Lord Jesus Christ said, once and for all, it is finished. And the great hymn said it best. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. These for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. In my hand, no price I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. It's exactly right. Jesus Christ died for us and rose again for us and he is our only hope for change. And God saved it right for the end. He saved the best for last in the book of Amos. We failed him. We harbor respectable sins, but praise God that he's not done with us yet. Praise God that he has hope for us to change. He declares that he will restore David's fallen tent in fulfillment of his Davidic covenant. And this text promises that the king will also rule not just over Israel, but over all the nations. And this is restorative because Israel had thrown off the Davidic king and their kingdom in the south more than 80 years prior to the writing of Amos. Amos's prophecy points to a time when the future reunification under a Davidic king would be glorious and amazing. And this very text is quoted by the Apostle James in Acts 15, verses 16 and 17. As the apostles see there that not just Israel, but all the nations, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All the people who, who, who come to Christ in faith are the people of God. People from every tribe and every language, every nation, The book of Amos concludes by pointing us to Jesus Christ, the son of David. Because only in Christ do we have the power to kill sin that still resides in our hearts. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit can we put the true king on the throne of our hearts, which is Jesus Christ. Yes, God calls us to repent of the sins that we tolerate. And that same God pours out grace and the Holy Spirit to give us the power to do it. God is righteous and just and he calls his people to be righteous and just. As the apostle Peter said, 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? Why did he do that? 
that we might die to sin, that is kill sin, and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This is God's word from the book of Amos. Let all who agree say amen.